Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Today's guest is Rebecca Rhapsody from Maui. She's a professional communications consultant, a teaching artist, and she has a love of storytelling with her own podcast series. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Aloha, Jane. I would like to ask you first how you got into being a communications consultant. That's a great question. I find it to be a catch-all term that gets people to lean in and ask, oh, what is that? And then I can explain in more detail what I do. So how I got into this, which will explain what it is too, is I grew up with a love for theater. I've always loved storytelling and I've always loved creativity and um, kind of the magic that comes together with theater as well. So I did a lot of theater growing up. And when you do theater, you're with a group of people that work together to literally create a reality. And everybody is agreeing to the reality that we're creating together. For example, I was in the show Grease in high school. And we had Rizzo, and we had Sandy, and we had all the other characters in that show. And for that hour and a half, two hours that was that play, everybody's working together. And this was like a group of probably about 60 people in that show. This was a high school show. Everybody is saying, okay, this person's name is Rizzo. It's not Hoku. This person's name is Sandy. It's not Alana. And that only works if you really all come together. And there's just an incredible amount of community that comes together when you do theater. Everybody has their role. Like if I don't come on stage for the dance I'm supposed to be in or for the thing that I'm supposed to sing, that's gonna affect everybody. So there's a huge amount of accountability And though there is a director, the director can't make everything happen. They do make a lot of decisions, but it counts on the actors and the dancers and the choreographers and the lighting designers to bring their brilliance to the collaborative table to really create this reality together. And my love of theater took me to Northwestern, which is where I went to undergrad. And I I got a degree in theater, but I got a degree in theater from their school of communication. And from there, um, I started to learn about other things that you could do with theater or just like ways of thinking about things. Like I took a class called sports in and as performance. It would look at the overall narrative. Like we looked at the, um, the hockey game that happened between America and the Soviet Union back in the, oh, I'm not sure exactly when, but very close to the Cold War, if not during the Cold War, and how that game framed so much more and there was so much symbolism involved in that game. And so when America won, it was a really big deal. Right, Um, I remember. Yeah, it's something that a lot of people remember. So that was eye-opening to me. And then I started taking classes in storytelling and um, teaching artistry, creative drama. And that was all about how you can create a world or a scenario or um, situations and activities in a classroom for children to help them engage in learning and help them engage their skills of empathy. So for example, a story drama that one of my mentors does every year with her either sixth grade or eighth graders, this is in Evanston, Illinois, is something called the runaway drama. And so when her drama students walk into her class, they all pretend that they are people that have run away from home. And they, they sit down and everybody at the same time writes a letter to their parents 
explaining why they ran away. And then you get them into groups of two and they, they have to be the character that they're creating and engage with other people in like the dining hall of the, the shelter that they're at. And it creates a lot of empathy and we created our own too. So some of my friends created a drama that we did for our age in our class where the draft was reinstated. <laughs> and how would we respond if there was a draft to send us to Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that? And it really gets you thinking way beyond reading something from a book could or learning something from a lecture could um, until you're actually put in the shoes of the character and thinking as if you were in that scenario and everybody in that room, because it's the power of theater, is thinking about these things together. And so I've, I've been a teaching artist for a really long time. A teaching artist is somebody who does an art form professionally as an adult and then also teaches in the classroom. And I've gone beyond that and done a lot of professional development training on how to use the arts as a way for people to learn. Like it's more active of a pedagogy, more hands-on. How do you engage hearts and minds? And when you're facilitating that type of group, no matter what age they are, you start to get a sensitivity for, does everybody know what's going on right now? Or do I need to be more specific with my prompts? Is everybody comfortable in this space right now? Or do I need to say something at the beginning of my lesson that will help the participants let go and try something new? And so that's just something I've always had an interest in, in communication. And then top that on with storytelling. I've, I've done a lot of my own personal just interest in storytelling. I've performed professionally as a storyteller. I do have that podcast where I really got into storytelling. Because when you experience something, even in justice as a story, it can help you change the way you think about the world. And that really started to get me, especially as I started to get more active. Um, this was probably in my early 20s, 23, 24, 25, about what actually is going on in the world right now in terms of climate change, in terms of the income inequality that is growing a lot during my lifetime in terms of the things that I'm going to have to face and my children are going to have to face in order to keep this as a livable planet. As somebody from Hawaii, I feel very grateful to have grown up with the Hawaiian culture around me and that those cultural values, and this is hard to put into words, but there's, there's cultural values. For example, aloha aina is a way of saying loving, but beyond loving, like loving and having reverence for and understanding the harmony that we are with um, with the land, um, Aina. And Aina actually means that which sustains us. And so those are really deep concepts that are, have just always been a part of my upbringing. And that's the worldview here in Hawaii. That's something that you can say, Aloha Aina, and it means a lot to a lot of people. You go to the mainland, that's not a value there anymore. There's some people that have a love for nature, but it's not that like rallying call that it can be like it is here in Hawaii. Aloha Aina. So I've just kind of when brought up with like this understanding of culture and how it can kind of affect the way that I am versus how a group is being versus how like the overview of a culture is being and the stories around that can be really really important. Let me just and, stop right here yeah. and have you share with people your podcast series if they want to listen to these stories. Sure. Um, so that podcast series is called The Story Connective, and we've got two years of solid content, and we, um, we are taking a bit of a hiatus right now because I've, I've got some family things going on. It's about stories of resilience and possibility, stories that will, will tell you about what are people doing 
to engage with the communities around them and to, to act locally, but think globally. And one reason why I really got into this is because as I was getting more aware of what's going on in the world and watching videos about the state of our climate and uh, <laughs> the legal structure of corporations and all of these things, these documentaries would say, okay, this is what's happening. And then just leave it there. Because of my background in the arts and the theater, I'm like, you can't do that to the human spirit. Like, help us out a little bit. Like, what do we do? How do we respond to these huge ideas? And if you start looking for that kind of information, I'm very influenced by permaculture, which is a very solutions-based perspective. There is a lot that people are doing out there to respond. And so the Story Connective is full of stories that paint a picture of what is possible. How are people responding to these large things? So it's a great podcast, The Story Connective. You do have to search for the the to find it sometimes. And it's got some really great, beautiful things. It also looks at the interaction between art and culture and things like that. So then you moved from, from storytelling and, and the teaching into working with groups to make them function better for better results and have people work together and not fighting and tugging in opposite directions. Definitely, yeah. Because as I got interested in how do we actually make some changes in the world, I realized that we need to work together to make those changes. Like if I want to plant a field, <laughs> I can do it all myself and I can plan it all out myself, but that's not going to be as fast or as fun if I do it with a group of 10 people or 15 people or however many. That goes so much faster. The way for humans to engage with each other is one of the most amazing gifts of humans. Like we're such amazing social creatures. So I was part of a couple of different groups, one of which I think some of your listeners will hear of, and it's the social artistry, the emerging leaders of social artistry. So there was a bunch of younger people, and I was, oh, I think probably about 26 when I got involved with that, that were brought together to create an event called the Odyssey, create the event plus. There was a lot that we could create. Working together, prove some some it proves some difficulty a very typical way that people think about it is at first you form and then you storm and then you norm and then you perform well that storming part really got me looking at okay well what can we do how does this work and so i was browsing around on the internet one day looking at i think i was particularly looking at sharing economies because that's such a really neat way of of having to work together to share resources. And I came across a keynote speech by a guy named Frederick Laudo. And that speech was called Reinventing Organizations, which is also the name of a book of his. And that, that speech, it's an hour and 30 minutes or so, and you can still find it online on YouTube. It was to, it told stories. And those stories completely shifted the way that I looked at organizations and what is possible. And I brought what I learned from that speech and I have since read the book and I've read additional books too that, that touch on that type of um, collaboration back to the Odyssey group. And we all started using those techniques and trying them out in real time. And then pretty much every group I've been involved with since, I see these patterns arise of you know, a bunch of people that really care about making this thing happen making this project happen, making, making something larger than they can themselves happen in the world, in our communities. And they face issues collaborating because collaborating can be difficult. And, and you so, were talking about moving from a hierarchy where there's a, a leader mm -hmm. 
to more collaboration. Do you want to talk about hierarchy versus collaboration? Sure. Um, so let me just go through just briefly what Laolo covers in this book. And what he's done is he has he was noticing that there's this real disengagement in the workforce these days. And the workforce, when we think about it, the most typical structure, group structure, group governance system that people are the most used to, that they don't even necessarily think about it or challenge it a lot of the time, is a hierarchical structure where you have the CEO at the top or um, the principal of the school at the top or even, you know, the king at the top that only got into this level of um, power because they were born into that level of power. In a company, when it's a CEO, it's not because they were born into that role, of course, but you have to work really, really hard to go from the mailroom to become the CEO. And maybe that's possible in some organizations, but I digress. Um, anyway, in those types of organizations, these hierarchical structured organizations, a lot of people are disengaged. I was just looking up a statistic for this. And According to Gallup's recent study of the state of the American workplace in 2017, 67% of employees are either not engaged or actively disengaged at work. And if you care about the financials of that, that can cost about $450 billion annually. This was back in 2019. And so Lalo was looking at this and he was a consultant for these large organizations. And he just felt like something was missing. And he started just really noticing that there were some organizations that were doing something really different. And what they were doing is they were moving beyond a hierarchical structure into kind of like the unknown frontier and figuring it out. And what was really interesting about these organizations is that they were, a lot of them, if not all of them, were doing very similar things. So the same solutions were emerging to the same problems, even though one organization was in Denmark, another, was, another one was in California, another one was in Florida, and so on and so forth. So he started really paying attention to that. And Laolo borrows from spiral dynamics and integral theory to create these types of perspectives of, of how humans are working together and learning how to work together and evolving to work together. You said they were doing something different. Yes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the organizations we know today are what he would call an amber or an, or an orange organization. An amber organization has highly formal roles within a hierarchical pyramid. An example of an amber organization is like the Catholic Church or the military or even the public school system. And the leadership style is paternalistic, authoritative. Whoever's at the top has the top. And if you're at the bottom, chances are you can't easily move up to the top. Like in the military, and I'm not that familiar with the military, but if you're an officer and if you're like a militiaman, there's, there's a bit of a gap there. And it's, it's a long process to get past that gap. Or back in the day, if you're in the Catholic Church and you're a friar, you're never dreaming of becoming the Pope. You just never can. But that there's some amazing breakthroughs in that type of structure because it creates these really stable, stable structures. And the, the church, for example, and the military was able to really expand their reach. They didn't all have to be in the same spot like a like a tribe of people, they could um, send troops or send missionaries around the world and know that that wouldn't, that the structure would still be there of this paternal authoritative leadership style. And the people on top would still be the people on top and the people on the bottom would still be the people on the bottom. Now, um, come into the Industrial Revolution and that arranged itself and evolved into what uh, Laolo calls an orange organization. And this is a an organization that kind of is like a machine. 
like, uh, like how quickly can we run? How efficiently can we be? And instead of the leadership being paternalistic and authoritative, it's more goal and task oriented. And so if I'm working in the mailroom, I can set up my goals and I can do my tasks and I can work my way up that chain of command. And maybe someday I too could be, you know, the top of a company. Most of the companies we know today are an orange organization. These types of organizations, they're really competitive and they're really based on profit and growth and innovation. And the management is still command and control. Like the objective is set by the people higher up in the pyramid, but there is some freedom on how the people below meet those objectives, depending on what it is. And it created a lot of innovation and it created this, this idea of meritocracy. Like if I worked hard enough and if I have the merit, I can rise. And a lot of the multinational corporations that we know run this way. Now, some of these realized that 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 needed a little bit more softening and that people (laughs) within those organizations, it was kind of lacking some soulfulness and they're recognizing that people were still disengaging. And so they started to figure out how to make it more of a value-driven culture, but it's still a hierarchical structure. Uh, Lalo calls those green organizations. And examples of those types of organizations are Ben & Jerry's or Southwest Airlines, where um, instead of it being very machine-like, they make it more of a family. So you still have the parents at the top, which are like the CEOs, and you have the family members, but you want everybody to have that feeling of being able to grow, et cetera. And that's great. It definitely creates a more values-driven culture. Uh, They're thinking about the employees as stakeholders, not just the customers, which creates more, more voice within the company. But when you think of a hierarchical organization, and everything I've mentioned up until this point is a hierarchical organization, it comes with a certain set of assuming values. And this is when you're, and these assuming values, these values that are assumed when you're using a hierarchical organization are the ones that kind of get in the way of some of the really progressive change that activist groups or groups all over the world that are trying to make a difference are are trying to, to get away from which is every human being has, has abilities to offer, have talents to offer. And in these hierarchical organizations, there still is this level of, I have the power and you don't. And so because I'm the decision-making person here and you're not the decision-making person here, the people that aren't the decision makers within a hierarchical structure, they're doing what they're supposed to do, mostly because somebody at the top is saying you have to. Like, this is how it works. And in a teal organization, that part goes away. And you see this thing called self-management come through. And in my communications work, self-management is something that I do a lot with. So teal, you you mentioned the word teal. So that is the color teal? Yeah. So we've gone from an amber organization to an orange organization to a green organization. And then this new one that is not hierarchical anymore is called a teal organization. And these ones are really... What's holding the people together is our common belief in the purpose of what we're doing together. Our purpose, our aim, and understanding that everybody has an ability to work and make decisions based off of that purpose and that aim. And then self-management's a big thing. And so you don't, you don't have anybody that can say, you need to do this because I'm in charge. It doesn't work that way in a TIL organization. And there's all different styles and methods of how to do self-management. And some of the projects I'm, I'm involved with here in Hawaii have to do with that. And then another big breakthrough for this is wholeness, recognizing that we are whole beings and that we, we don't have just have to bring our logical, rational parts of ourselves to work, but that we can bring our masculine and feminine parts of ourselves and everything in between, because that's a bit of a spectrum, and that we can bring 
some of these organizations let you bring your dog to work. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a silly example. And recognizing that we, we as humans do have not just logical and mental, but we have emotional, physical, and spiritual strengths as well. And they figure out how to make that all work together. Some organizations that you're familiar with that do run this way is Patagonia. Zappos, which is a shoe company, is using a system of self-management called Holacracy, um, which is technically teal. And there's, there's just some really amazing things going on in healthcare in the Netherlands with this company called Bertzorg, which I highly suggest you check up. When I listened to the lecture and I heard the story of Bertzorg and how it was organized, that just completely changed my paradigm about how people can work together and what's possible. So in Laolo's book and in his lectures, he does a really great job telling concrete stories of how teal organizations work in action. Oh, Patagonia is another company you've probably heard of that works this way. And I've heard that Michelin Tires is even looking into, if not already, has switched to this style of organization. Because it, it makes every single person in the organization a leader, distributed leadership. And so if I'm working for one of these companies that has this type of organizational structure and has these values of wholeness and um, ways of self-management and trusting people, and that we all can be trusted to listen to the purpose and bring our brilliance to this organization, um, if I sense that something could be better, I have the ability to, to make that change and to try to figure out how to make that better. A quick story about that, and I'll try to make it quick, is um, in Patagonia, they were using packaging for their long underwear that was wrapped in plastic. And a lot of the, the values and the evolutionary purpose of the Patagonia clothing company and outdoor gear company is to, to have a more minimal impact on the environment and help steward the environment. And they're like, we're using plastic in our packaging. Why are we doing this? And that really bothered somebody in the organization. And they talked to other people and then it started to bother somebody's. And they started to figure out a solution for it. And they kept asking the advice of experts along the way, and they switched how they did their packaging. It was kind of a big change at the time where they weren't going to use any packaging. They were just going to hang them on hangers, this um, underwear, long underwear, and all of the other outdoor companies were selling it in plastic. Um, they made that change. And even though they had experts that were saying, you're going to lose money if you do that, they did it anyway because they were following the purpose of the company and being more in alignment with who they wanted to be in the world and what they want to represent. And they made money. And they actually changed the way that the industry does that. So now if you go to REI or other companies, you'll see that most long underwear is no longer using plastic packaging. They're just hung up on hangers or maybe sold in like cardboard packaging. Hmm. So that's what two organizations are like. Like I just have an ability to understand structures. And if you have a group of people working together and one person saying this and another person saying that, and they're not saying the same thing, but they think they are, I have an ability to kind of sense that and help people hear each other. If a decision's being made, but not everybody is being consulted with that decision, I've got a sensitivity to recognizing that. And this comes from my background in theater and teaching. And it just comes from, I don't know, blame it on my double Capricorn. I'm not sure. <laughs> You've heard of uh, Rhapsody in Blue. I hear that you, you're Rhapsody in Teal. Indeed I am. Yep. That's what people make their checks out to when I do this communications consulting work. Rhapsody in Teal. Website coming soon. You're pretty well versed and steeped in this uh, teal way of, of doing things and you've had experience with it. So how do you apply that to your groups in Maui? 
Sure. Um, so I work for a variety of organizations in Maui. Um, one of my favorite projects is called the Farm to School Hui. And the Hui is a, is a Hawaiian word for, uh, Hawaiian words can have a lot of different meanings, but a basic translation is that it's a, a network of people or a group of people, a collaborative, cooperative of people, a Hui. And so the Farm to School Hui is a collaboration, a network, of many different organizations that are passionate about farm to school. If you look up farm to school on the internet, you'll see that it's a national movement, but ultimately they're, they're looking at how do we get locally grown whole produce into our school cafeterias so our kids aren't eating things that are coming out of a can in a box. How do we get a, a school garden, like a classroom, that's outside where things are actually growing and the kids are involved in the growing process of these things into every single school, public, private, doesn't matter. And how do we teach curriculum that teaches kids about where our food comes from and what are food systems like and really pre um, prepare them with that information so that they can make, they can be the leaders for the shifts that need to happen in the food system moving forward. And those shifts can be just as easy as just getting more people to eat healthy so we don't have such obesity problems in this country to however far you want to push that agenda, depending on who you are. But I think we can all agree that we want our communities and for our children to be healthier. So um, fighting obesity is one of the, the target goals for that. And so there's <laughs> Hawaii is a very unusual place in that we have different islands. And so we have these quarterly meetings where we have people from the Big Island, from Maui, from Kauai, all come to Oahu. It's usually Oahu because most people are on Oahu to have these, these quarterly meetings. And the organization's growing. They've been around for about 10 years and they're starting to figure out, all right, so we've got more and more people and more and more organizations in, in the hui, in this farm to school hui, which is the name of the organization, the Hawaii State Farm to School hui. How do we organize ourselves? How do we structure ourselves? And the first meeting that I went to for this organization happened to be just about that. How do we structure ourselves? And I was listening in and I was the new person, so I didn't say too much. But I got into some conversations on the side where I talked about Teal. And people really had a lot of interest in what I had to say. And just a real natural progression happened because there's a lot of brilliant people that are also familiar with various organizational structures and why, they, why they're a great option. Various things happened. And now I'm helping that organization implement a governance structure called sociocracy into the way that they do things. And so instead of having working groups where you have one or two people working on something and you're not necessarily clear about who else is working on it, the Farm to School Hui is now set up to, to run as circles. So we have a general circle and we have uh, working group circles and there's various methods, I'd like to say like rules and values that govern how we make decisions. So just to break down what sociocracy is again, is sociocracy is a governance methodology, you can look it up, that's really based on whole system design for organizational structure and decision-making based on values. The three main values of sociocracy are equivalence, effectiveness, and transparency. Sociocracy is one methodology and it's, it's great and it's been working well for the Hui and we're learning more and more. But if you're going to do a self-organizing organization, and I'm moving away from the Hui because I also work with a variety of projects here, almost all of them have to do with the food system. That's where I focus my energy because I, like I said, I'm, I can be very practically minded. Maybe it's my double Capricorn. And I believe in sense that if we can shift our food systems to be more regenerative and beyond sustainable, 
that makes a big difference because then we're supporting our local farmers. We're all eating healthier. We're all connecting because food is a huge connector. We're not using fossil fuels to shift our food around the world. And we're also not pumping a whole bunch of chemicals into our environment just by switching the food system around. So that's where I really put a lot of my action and energy in this world these days. So I have two other organizations that I work with. One is the Lakahea Community Research Center. Lakahea is a Hawaiian word for calling in the light. They also are a passionate group of people doing lots of great stuff on the ground and they don't use sociocracy per se, but I'm helping them recognize what kind of structures do they use and helping them facilitate their meetings and being like, all right, you need a decision-making process. It doesn't have to be this. You can use this. What works for your group? Whatever structure you use, sociocracy is a great one that you can just read about and implement as it is. It's kind of like knowing that everyone you're collaborating with is playing the same game. So imagine if you're all playing soccer. Great. But if you don't all know that you're playing soccer and some people are assuming that you're playing soccer, even if the majority is playing soccer and another person thinks we're playing basketball, not going to go so well. You all need to know what the values are and what the, the rules of communication are. Who's making decisions? How are you making those decisions? So I help organizations in Hawaii do that. How is sociocracy different from just voting? Oh, great question. The decision-making process that sociocracy uses is the consent-based decision-making process. It's actually a really great decision-making process, and it's based on consent. This is different from consensus. I know consent and consensus sound really similar because consensus has more to do with a large group all having to come to an agreement and people can block it. Whereas consent is just about trying to find the best solution for now. What is safe enough to try and good enough for now? And when you make a decision, you set it for a certain amount of time and you're trying to find a decision that everybody can consent to. You do in the decision-making process. It's really well set up that you always find some decision that everyone can agree to, even if that decision is, let's send this volunteer and this volunteer and this volunteer to go figure out what a better solution would be, and we'll talk about it at the next meeting. For the consent-based decision-making process, you find a decision. Somebody, whoever's sensing the issue, gives a proposal. This proposes that we try something in a different way. For example, say that we're all working on a farm together and the proposal is to put produce out in this order rather than this order so that more people are able to access the lumpy produce in the morning versus later on in the day. And then everybody has a, has a say in, um, not just a say, but you really make sure that everybody knows that we're talking about the same thing and that everybody gets heard. And then you figure out through the process a decision that is in everybody's realm of tolerance. Is it the best solution? I don't know, but it's the best solution that you can come up with for everybody to say, yeah, I can do this. And when you say the realm of tolerance, it's like if you and I were to go traveling together, Jane, and I want to go to the beach and you don't like the beach and you want to go to an amusement park. And I don't like amusement parks, but we both like museums. That museum decision would be in our realm of tolerance, something that both of us can be like, yeah, I would rather go to the beach. You'd rather go to the amusement park but we're both good with going to the museum. So that's what we're gonna do. And the way that this is different from voting, um, it's so typical when people start to adapt this decision-making process to say, oh, well, let's vote on it. Because especially here in America where we use democracy, voting is something we always think about. But the, the issue with voting and why we don't call it voting is because with voting, there's still winners and there's still losers. Somebody puts out a proposal, you vote on it, and say five people say yes to the proposal and four people say no to the proposal. Those four people are not having any say 
and how to like adapt or change or whatever the decision that's being made. It's just, this is the decision. Those five people won and got their way and those four people didn't. So what are those four people going to do? Well, they might just lick their wounds and go along with it all, or they might dig in their heels and make it really difficult to get other things done and not collaborate and slow down the flow of whatever decision that has been voted on, the decision that has won. We see that a lot in our own political structure here in this country, where we have Republicans and Democrats and they vote on things and whoever wins is the winner and that team is like, rah, rah, let's go. And the other opposing team digs in their heels and makes it really hard for the other team to progress. But with the consent-based decision-making process, that doesn't happen. What I hope that this podcast can do is just help people recognize that there are other ways that you can work and that people have been really successful working that way. There's organizations out there with 10,000 employees, 40,000 employees using some type of self-organizing organizational structure. I really do think that that's the direction that we're going in because it, it accounts for how all of us have agency to make choices and make decisions and to sense solutions to the issues that are facing our company and our communities and our world. And the values that it brings out and the way that it helps us be our best versions of ourselves, because we, it, it does take a lot of ourselves to really listen and make sure that everybody is being heard and seen. It really instills and creates and evolves in us the values that I think we need as human beings to face the issues that are coming our way. I think it was Einstein that said that you can't solve the problems from the same perspective from which you created the problems. I do believe that these self-organizing organizations are a new paradigm. Well, I think that even sequestered, we continue to meet, to organize, and to need to structure group dynamics. So do you want to give several ways to improve group dynamics? Certainly. One thing, whether you're online or offline, is make it explicit, meaning don't make assumptions that everybody knows, but make sure that everybody knows how you're going to communicate in a group. So I've been to so many group meetings where it's more like the ping pong style, like whoever has the loudest voice is the one who's talking. <laughs> so maybe you have an agenda point and the, whoever's running the meeting says, all right, this is what we're talking about now. And then it's like, boom, 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 boom. This person talks and then this person talks and then the same person talks again. And a lot of people, if you look around the circle, will be sitting there with kind of closed off body positions and not saying a word. It's not that those people don't have something great to say. It's that that ping pong style of discourse really favors people who feel comfortable verbally expressing themselves and feel comfortable being louder. And those quieter people often have brilliant things to say. There's really great uses for ping pong dialogue. It's, it's a great way of doing a meeting for a short period of time. But if you really want something where you're deciding something, a great method you can use is more input rounds where you go around the circle and each person has a chance to speak, like one after the other. And you get really clear about what it is that they're speaking about. Don't just say, all right, we're going to talk about the garden today. That's super, super vague. Instead, be like, all right, we're going to talk about the, the way that the compost is making it into the compost and how that's making it into the garden. Like, Be as specific as you can with the prompts and what it is that you want people's input on, and then let people go around one by one to say something. And what's great about that method is that it really trains us to listen. Because we spend so much of our time, if we're doing the ping pong method, thinking, well, what am I gonna respond to? How am I gonna, what am I gonna say based on what they just said? And we spend more time trying to think in our heads how to respond rather than listen to what the person's actually saying. 
Whereas if you do a round method, you really get to listen to each person. And oh my goodness, like I tend to be pretty sensitive and kind of empathic. When I'm in that ping pong style of communication, I can get really tense because you don't know who's speaking yet and people's egos kind of rise and there's a lot of competition in the space. As soon as it switches to a round style of communication, my entire body system relaxes. And I know I'm not the only one because we at the Hui, the Farm to School Hui talk about this because now we pretty much just speak in rounds because everybody knows they're going to have their chance to say something. Always give people the option to pass. If you have the time and the space and it's something you want to go deep on, you keep going around until everybody's saying pass and nobody has anything else to say. So that's a really useful tip is to make it really explicit of how things are being communicated. Another thing is to be really clear about what a meeting is for. So if you're getting together with a group of people, have somebody in that space really set the agenda of what you're meeting. And I know that a lot of groups are really great at agendas, but agendas can be different than just what the objective is of the meeting. Why are you having this meeting? What do you want to be different because you had this meeting than if you had not had this meeting? If you can get really clear on what the aim of the different parts of the agenda is, you spend less time like spinning your heels talking about things because we, we know that in organizations, there's some people that love talking about things and there's organizations where some people love just doing things. So if you can be really clear about what the objective is, that really helps with keeping people happy and keeping that sense of there's a purpose for why we're meeting. It's amazing how many groups will be like, all right, we're having a meeting because we have a meeting every two weeks. Okay, great. Well, but why are we here? What are we doing? <laughs> Those are two really great tips. And another one that's just more of a communications basic, but it's done wonders for my own communication style. I use it in all of my relationships. And as a facilitator, I, I do use it in groups quite a lot when I sense that not everybody's saying the same thing is um, deep listen. Deep listening is really listening to what somebody's saying and then repeating back to them what you think they're saying. That's like dousing water on a fire. Like when somebody is getting agitated in a meeting, it's so great if somebody can say, all right, I'm noticing that we keep talking about this and that voices are getting louder. What I think you're saying, what I think I'm hearing you say is, and then you summarize whatever it is that they're saying. And then you can say the other side, what I think you over here is saying, and you repeat it back to them. And that usually helps them really clarify if they are in fact talking about the same things. And you can even ask them, like, do you have any clarifying questions about what the other person is saying? And really help make sure that when there is discord, or as um, a lot of teal organizations like to call it, tension, like not conflict, but tension, because tension is something that's really just bringing your attention to something that needs some love and some help, that people know what the tension is about and that we can still be on the same team to solve the tension. And it doesn't have to do with like what he said, she said, or not even being clear about what other people said. And again, when you're in a meeting and that's happening, Almost always, if you look around the room, there's people that are completely quiet with their body languages closed off because they don't want to take the agency to try to figure out what's happening. That's not their skill set, and that's fine. But they're not engaging. They're disengaging rather than helping to figure out what the conflict, I mean, how to solve the tension. So if you can name what the different sides are and what different people are saying and be really, really great at active listening and deep listening, that can really help. Deep listening being that ability to like really listen and repeat back what somebody said so that they know that they're being seen and heard. So those are some basic tips. Just one more is no matter what structure you're using, try to be as explicit as possible, meaning everybody knows how your group is going to handle conflict if it comes up, because conflict always comes up in a group. So if you have two people that are having an issue with each other, 
it's really great to have decided, all right, if you're having an issue with each other, oh, this is a great one. Um, don't spread that to other people in the organization. Like, don't say anything to anybody in the organization that you would not say to that person directly. <laughs> and that way you can really keep a conflict contained to those two people and you won't like spread whatever toxicity or points of view that may or may not even be correct assumptions about people around the organization. It's between those two people, keep it between those two people and then they can talk it out and then they can add a third person to mediate that they both feel comfortable with to handle that conflict. And it's a lot easier to do that when everybody's agreed that that's how you're going to handle conflict before there's actually a conflict. Wow. lot to think about. So yeah. <laughs> so if people want to contact you about collaboration and group dynamics, is there a way they can get a hold of you? Certainly. So my website for my podcast is still active and that is story connective, connective like connective tissue storyconnective.org. And so if you go to that, you'll see contact information for me, Rhapsody at storyconnective.org, and that leads to me. You can also email me at Becca, B-E-C-C-A dot Rhapsody, R-H-A-P-S-O-D-Y, at gmail.com. Both of those will reach me. And then you can find me on Facebook and you can find me on Instagram as well. And so feel free to DM me, direct message me. Okay. And so any last minute thoughts that you'd like to share about or speculations about how this could make the world better if we on a world dynamic? (laughs) Oh, what a question. (laughs) Uh, Make the world better on a world dynamic. Gosh, I think it's just such a great skill to develop at whatever age we are, that if we're making decision, really think, who are the stakeholders in this decision? Who is this decision going to affect? And can we get more feedback from as many various groups as possible before we make decisions? It does go a little bit slower. There's a really great proverb that is, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. It's a more peaceful way to be that if we can get beyond like, I'm right, you're wrong. This serves me. And so therefore, this is the way it's going to happen, even though it's totally squishing that group of people over there, that life form over there. If we can have a more holistic way of looking at things and recognizing that things are complexly interconnected, I think that these self-organization systems give us some tools and some paradigm goggles that you can put on that really help us face the complexities that we are dealing with today and make sure that more voices are being brought to the table and that we're seeing the brilliance of every human and every life form to recognize how it's all interconnected and how we, we need each other. We can't just have one dominant species survive. Wow, that's great. So I'm so grateful that you consented to be on the show and share all of this information. You've packed a lot in a short amount of time. So thank you, Rhapsody. Thank you, Jane. Um, thank you so much for having me. And um, I just love your platform and your, the joy that you get in allowing people to talk about the things that they're passionate about. You definitely light up the world around you. And I really appreciate being a friend. Thank you. So you don't miss any of our shows. Make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.